Okay, y'all, let's uh, turn to Job. I didn't do a walk down this morning because I need all the time I can get for this sermon. So we are going to look at uh, 38, 1 through 5. This is part 2. I'm sure everyone here knows Al Capone or at least knows the name, maybe saw the movie, a couple of movies, The Untouchable, Scarface. Um, He was the fourth child of nine. He quit school right after sixth grade uh, to join Johnny Torrio's James Street gang. Shortly after joining the gang, uh, he was in a place that served illegal alcohol and prostitutes. He got into a scrape, a rumble, a fight. Uh, He took a razor that slashed him the left part of his face, which led to his infamous uh, name Scarface, right? Uh, by murdering rivals and rival gangs during the Prohibition era, which is during the 1920s, uh, he advanced up the mafia uh, ladder in Chicago, eventually becoming its notorious leader. Uh, By 1927, his estimated worth from all of his organized crime efforts in 1927 was over $100 million. Um, He was finally arrested, And you're probably wondering, you know, what did they finally get him on? Uh, Mass murder? Um, Illegal bootlegging of alcohol? Prostitution rings? Gambling rings? No. They got him on a federal tax income evasion, taxes income evasion. So I hope you did all your taxes this year. You've turned them in. Um, He was sentenced to 11 years in prison, and he went to that newly built prison that was specifically designed for the alpha criminal, Alcatraz. Uh, He served um, seven years of his 11-year sentence, but he had some um, degenerating, decaying health issues due to uh, his lifestyle, and uh, he was... Uh, let go. And then eight years after his release, he died a powerless, broke recluse, painfully empty and all alone. His philosophy of life uh, could probably be captured in this particular quote. It was this. He says, you can get a lot farther with a kind word and a gun than a kind word alone. Uh, All of us in this room are trying to get a lot farther in something. And we use a kind word or we use a gun. Uh, We use education or we use people. We use money or we use physical appearance. Uh, We use anger or we blame others. Um, We might use ministry or we might use crime. But one thing's certain, all of us are trying to get a lot farther in something. So welcome to God Shows Up Part 2 in Job 38-42. Let's stand for the hearing of God's Word. We're going to look at verse 1-11 through of 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. 
Uh, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Uh, Or who shut up the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for for it and set bars and doors, and thus said, uh, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. 39.1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Uh, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Go down to nine. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Thirteen. The wings of the ostrich weigh proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? Nineteen. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Twenty-six. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Forty. Verse one. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that not only uh, inspired and scripturated uh, your word, uh, but now illuminates it for us, enlightens us to see the wonders in it, not just the rattling around of information in our heads, uh, but the wonder and the contours, the grace and the beauty the majesty, the life, the power of it in our lives. So, O oh Lord, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would fill us, that you would anoint us, that you would enable us to see and enable us to feel deeply uh, what's in your Word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are trying to get a lot farther in something. This is how we all work, including Job. Job wanted to get a lot farther in understanding why he was suffering. I mean, I think we've been getting that through the whole letter. He, he wanted to know why he was suffering in an almost pathological kind of way. For Job, he sensed that if he knew why he was suffering, he would be healed. He would be delivered there'd be a release for him. So Job had a need to know, why am I suffering? Uh, Job also wanted to get a lot further in proving himself. He wanted to prove himself to God. He wanted to prove himself to his three friends and certainly to his community that he lived in in the ancient Near East. Uh, We know that if, basically he was saying, if there is any sin, if there is any fault, if there is any flaw with me before you, O God, would you bring it to my attention? 
bring your list. And that's what is part of his last words. Remember when he was talking, he basically was saying, I'm entering the courtroom. I'm ready for the trial. Bring the list of offenses that I've committed against you. Show them to me, God. Bring them to my attention. And if not, because he was fairly confident there weren't, he says, if not, then vindicate me. Give me a stamp of approval, an ultimate verdict of not guilty, a proof of righteousness, so I can put it before my three accusing cold friends. Job had a need to prove himself, to be free from the accusations and the rejection of his three friends, right? Job also wanted to get a lot farther in controlling his life, his out-of-control life. Um, He felt very deeply uh, his neediness and his emptiness, and that was painful. Plus, though, he felt not only with his neediness and his emptiness, he felt his weakness or his lack of ability to control what's going on. So what this means was is that he realized he was unable to fill his own emptiness. He was unable to meet his own needs. He was unable to stop the pain and the suffering in his life. So Job had a need for control in a life that was out of control. We need all the time. but we cannot meet our needs. This is how we all work, every single one of us. And those of us that get this terrible tension that we need all the time but can't meet our own needs, we're not neurotic. We're actually wise. You actually know yourself. And that makes you a lot farther ahead than a lot of people in the church and outside the church. So we need all the time, but we cannot meet our needs. So what are we going to do about it? Well, the book of Job consistently has given us three ways to live, uh, three ways um, to follow and find life, three ways to pursue a wise way of living, three ways to relate to suffering and pain, three ways by which we follow a path of life. Uh, And by the time we get to God finally showing up, the third way, this third way, Job's way, uh, this gospel way that we've been seeing in contrast to his wife and in contrast to his three friends, by the time we get to God showing up, God confirms and God establishes that the third way to live is the way. It's the only wise way. It's the only way that gives life. It's the only way that fills up a person. It's the only way that meets the deepest needs of a person. It's the only human way. So here's the plan. We're going to look at this third way to handle this terrible tension in all of us. We need all the time, but we cannot meet our own needs. Uh, We're going to then look at how, first we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at, well, how do you get it? I mean, how do you get it? How does a third way become real to you? All right, so that's where we're heading. So here we go. Look at 40. I want you to look at chapter 40. Look at verses 3 through 5. This is the end of the first section. 
God actually gives two speeches. Uh, his first speech goes 38, 1, all the way down to verse 2 of 40. And then Job takes over and Job answers the Lord and says, Behold, which basically Job is saying, uh, what I'm about to say is very, very important. What I'm about to say, I feel very, very deeply. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. This is the first time Job is silent in the whole book. Uh, When the three friends spoke, after they spoke, Job always answered back. Job always argued back. Job always fought back. Sometimes uh, four long chapters Usually his response was very desperate. Um, it was painful. Uh, it was coming from the deepest parts of his soul. Uh, it would have been someone of extraordinary willpower or emotional numbness to not have been able to respond to those three friends. But now Job is silent. So why is he silent? The picture of putting his hands over his mouth is silence. That's a universal metaphor, certainly in that day, maybe not as much today. But why is he silent? Well, for many that read this passage, they think because he's scared of God, that God's finally putting him in his place. Now, today we're going to talk a little bit about that. Next week we're going to actually see it a little bit more. But know this, that is not what's happening here. In fact, in 42.7, God rightly affirms that Job has spoken rightly about him. And it rebukes his three friends of not speaking rightly about him. So in other words, what God is saying that all that Job has done from all the chapters up, all his responses, all the praying is pain, God actually affirms what he's saying. He actually affirms that this is the right view of God. And then he rebukes and he goes after the three friends that this is not a right view of me. This is not a way of wisdom. Job has touched on the way of wisdom. Job is on the path of wisdom. And that's when God starts again confirming or establishing this third way to live. Uh, So what's happening? Job is silent because the storm in his heart is finally calmed. Quieted. Stilled. Silenced. Job's heart is no longer stormy. It's no longer noisy. It's no longer busy. It's no longer desperately trying to fill an emptiness. It's no longer desperately craving and demanding. It's no longer feeling at the bottom of its bowels an anxiety and a fear and a crushing despair. Job is no longer needy. Job no longer is trying to fill his emptiness. Job is filled up. Job is at rest. Now, do you see the good news here? This is incredible good news. This is unbelievable good news. Job's silence. 
Job's finally being at rest, Job's calmness amidst the storm, Job being okay, Job being filled up without ever knowing all the facts to his case. The good news here is that Job is actually at peace and filled up and calm without ever knowing why he's suffering. He is actually uh, filled up without ever having to prove himself. He's actually filled up and silenced and quieted and calmed and at peace and at rest without ever uh, controlling his out-of-control world. So the good news here is that what Job went in thinking that he had to have and what he must have and what he desperately needed, that he actually got calmed and actually got put to rest and actually got silenced and actually got filled up without having to have it, without needing to know why he suffered, without needing to prove himself to others, to be vindicated before others, without ever needing to have some sense of control in his out-of-control life. This This is life change. This is the kind of change you can't will into being. This is the kind of change you can't feel yourself into. This is a genuine, real work of grace. This is the third way. This is the way of humility. Now, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, in his chapter on the great sin in which he says is pride, he says, do you know what? Do you know what would most strike you? Do you know what you'd walk away with most remembering if you met a truly humble person? Uh, You wouldn't walk away like if you encountered a truly humble person and you engaged with them and you interacted with them. He says, you wouldn't leave this encounter. You wouldn't leave this relationship. You wouldn't leave this interaction saying, gosh, what a humble person. And then he goes on to say, especially, quote, uh, if they are a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. He says, what you will walk away with If you truly encounter a humble person, what you will walk away with is being utterly uh, amazed at how interested in you they were. That they listened to you. That they were all there with you. The third way of humility is the way of self-forgetfulness. The way of humility... Is forgetting yourself. How can humility be so self-forgetting? Because inherent in humility is being filled up, not empty and needy. Inherent in humility is filled up. Not being empty and needy. If we are empty and needy, we are not humble. 
the scriptures say we're prideful, we're swollen, we're overinflated, we're full of ourselves. Uh, to be empty and needy is to not forget yourself. It's to be full of yourself. And so what we do is we think about ourselves in our conversations. We think about ourselves in our life experiences. We think about ourselves in our recreation and our playing and our working. We think about ourselves in our relationships. We think, how do we look? How are we being treated? How are we doing? We think about ourselves and we go through the day, all through the day, feeling snubbed or neglected or ignored. We go through the day feeling stupid. We go through the day feeling and getting down on ourselves, right? We can be full of ourselves in two ways. So humility is being filled up. The opposite is pride, which is being full of yourself. And to be full of ourselves, we can be full of ourselves in two ways, according to the scriptures. We can be full of ourselves in a superior way, and we can be full of ourselves in an inferior way, right? So a superior way thinks this, I will meet my needs. I will fill my emptiness. And the superior way will go about it by saying, I will fill it with money. I will fill it with sex. I will fill it with my appearance. I will fill it with success. I will fill it with accomplishment. I will fill it with recognition. I will fill it. Now, the religious form of the superior way goes like this. If I obey, if I'm humble, if I pray and read the scriptures, if I fix this area of my life, then God will love me. Then God will accept me. Then God will bless me. Then God will meet my needs. Right? Now, the inferior way, it thinks like this. It thinks it's hopeless. All is meaningless. Feel sorry for yourself. Give in to your pain. Humility, as one person says, is not thinking more of yourself in a superior way. And it's not thinking less of yourself in an inferior way. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. Now, how does that happen? I mean, how do you think of yourself less? I mean, how do you get that kind of humility? How do you get a humility that's filled up And it's not needing and grasping and trying to stuff and fill an emptiness. How do you do that? And the way it tries to stuff and fill an emptiness is it fills and bloats itself. That's the literal word for pride. Puffed up, it's overinflated, it's swollen with self. Thinking about itself, whether highly or lowly, it's still all about self. How do we get out of that? How do we become in in a real genuine way humble? How does a gracious work of God like that take place? How does that happen? C.S. Lewis in the same book, Mere Christianity, same chapter, The Great Sin says, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too, he says. At least nothing whatsoever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. So humility starts with being very, very aware that we're prideful, according to C.S. Lewis. I think that's right. 
I think that's right. It starts with being very, very aware that you need all the time. And you can't meet your needs. That you always think about yourself all the time. Either an overinflated way or an underinflated way. But we're doing this all the time. That's how it starts. Then humility actually gets pushed in and floods the heart or the soul when this happens. When we take a closer look at God. That's when you start getting filled up. And true humility starts becoming a reality. In chapters 38 through 42, God gives Job a closer look of himself. That's what's happening. I mean, the whole climax of the book has been building to God showing up. The whole solution and the release and the deliverance and the redemption and the help and the everything and all the tension in the book has been building to, all of it's been building towards God showing up. Somehow God showing up is the solution. God showing up is the release, the freedom, the redemption, the solution to all that's going on. So God showing up. So what is he doing in 38 through 42? He doesn't take Job to a mystical cave. He, he speaks to Job. His word and his works. And he lays them all before Job and all the wonder and the beauty and the majesty and the mercy of it all. And he begs and pleads and invites Job to take a closer look. See, what's happening here is that Job uh, is asked some 70-something questions. And this is not a catechism class. This is not a test of Job's Bible knowledge. Job, who determined the measurement of the earth? Um, God. Job, who stopped the sea when it was, when it birthed from the womb like a rushing chaos? Who said, thou shall not pass any further? Um, God? Who made the weird ostrich, ugly, weird bird that flaps its wings continuously but can't fly and yet made it faster than the most beautiful and graceful horse that ever lived? Um, God, that's not what's going on here. God's questions are not tests of knowledge. They are invitations to discover God. God's goal is not to get Job to agree with him. Yes, you measured the earth. Yes, you stopped the seas. Yes, You know when. You provide for the mountain goat when it gives birth on a mountain. Yes, you take care of these animals we have no control over, we don't even care about. Yes. 
God's goal is not to get Job to agree with his control and agree with his power and agree with his wisdom and agree with his beauty and agree with his love and care of the world. God's goal is to get Job to enter into it. To have it become real. For his control to be so real, it's Job's control. For God's wisdom and his beauty to be so real, it fills him up. For God's power and creativity and his love and care for the world to reach his soul. God's goal is to make God real to Job. To draw him into the wonder. God's goal is to fill Job up with himself, creating humility. Now, we don't know when this happened for Job and all these four chapters that are here. Uh, We don't know when Job actually began to get God. We're not told. Um, We don't know when he got filled up. What was that moment that he became humble? When did he start becoming silent? When did he start feeling at rest? When did the wonder of God be made real to him? We don't know. We don't know when. I mean, was it it when... uh, God took him through the tour of the fundamental structures of the world. I don't know. Was it when he was showing him the measurements of the earth and the literal foundations of the earth? I don't know. Was it when he started showing him the foundations of the seas and the foundations of light and darkness and he started showing him the foundations of the visible heavens and the starry host? Was that when it happened? Or was it when he took him through a tour through the untraveled areas, the the deep hidden regions, the deep recesses that nobody sees but God? Was it when he took him down into the very springs of the sea where the sea actually has its source? And then only one person walks there. Is that when it happened? I don't know. Or how about when he went to the storehouses of heaven and showed him where, where hail and rain and ice and snow and climate change takes place, like the storms and the whirlwind that wrecked him. Was it then? I don't know. Was it when he took him down into the gates of death the deepest, darkest place in the universe and walked in and out like a free person, like he owned the place. Maybe. Was it when he took him on a tour of these strange, particular, weird animals? that man has no control over. The oryx, the wild donkey, the hawk and the eagle, 
the lion. Or was it when he showed him animals that only God cares for? Only God sees. I mean, meaningless animals. Later on in Israel's history, there'll be unclean animals, like the raven or the mountain goat or the weird ostrich. I don't know. But one thing's for certain. When Job was done, when God was done with his first sermon, this first word to him, uh, he got deep in his soul how much God loved the world. How much he controls it. How much he pays attention to every single detail because he's committed to it and he loves it and he cares compassionately for it. The Apostle John would put it this way. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. God's love or his commitment, uh, his compassion, his care for the world, for Job, for you, for me, is to be measured by what he gave. He gave everything he had. So there was nothing left to give. His own son. And who did he give him to? And who did he give him for? People who are full of themselves. People that actually think they can meet their own needs. People that actually think they can control their life and the world. People that are on the pendulum of either bouncing back into this overinflated view of themselves or crushed under this inferior view of themselves, but it's still thinking, filled, full of themselves. That's who he loves. Job knew for God to love someone like him, it would cost him. He just didn't know how much it would cost God at that time. He, he didn't know, but he knew at this time it would take a redeemer. He knew it would take something. It would cost God something to be so committed to the world and to him. But you do. You know fully what it cost him to love you. His own son. This should humble us. This should fill us up. So that we don't think about ourselves anymore. And so we can get on with living and loving and serving and working 
and ministering and enjoying and community. It's not a bad deal.